time for our weekly segment with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Good morning. Uh, always great to be here. Some interesting stories on the agenda today with respect to the resumption of normal activities within the justice system, or will it ever go back to exactly the way it was before? I'm looking at civil jury trials, COVID, and whether or not they will continue. Yes, so that's actually up for debate right now, uh, and the uh, government is looking for input uh, about what people uh, think about that. Uh, and what's gone on is that um, criminal jury trials in British Columbia uh, resumed. They resumed back in September of 2020. Uh, they put into uh, effect barriers and so on in the courtroom to separate off the jurors. And in some cases, they're using two courtrooms, one for the jurors to go and deliberate in and a separate one to hear evidence in. So we've got those uh, going again, although we're using, I think, a little bit of care in terms of when they should be used. And for criminal jury trials, you actually have a constitutional right to a criminal jury trial mm-hmm. anytime somebody's charged with an offense which could be punished by five years or more in jail. Mm-hmm. But there's no similar right to a civil jury trial. Interesting. Uh, and in British Columbia, we have suspended and kept suspended, the government has, civil jury trials as a result of COVID. Now, There's a long history of civil jury trials in British Columbia. Uh, They go back to like sort of the 1800s. And in fact, at that time, they were the the norm. The default option was going to be, look, if you were suing somebody, it would be with a jury deciding the case. Uh, And as far back as 1860, there's a decision of uh, then uh, Governor Douglas uh, to permit non-British subjects to serve on jurors, juries, uh, and at that time, he, that same proclamation uh, provided that if it wasn't uh, possible or convenient to locate 12 people to be on a juror, jury for a civil matter, seven would do. Uh, and so we continue to have the vestiges of that. Um, in British Columbia now, civil juries, unlike criminal ones, don't have 12 people on them. Uh, they're smaller. Uh, a civil jury trial would have eight people on it. And another interesting thing about them is that they don't require a unanimous verdict. In a criminal case, all 12 people have to agree, right, one way or the other for there to be a verdict. In civil cases, after three hours of deliberation, 75% are sufficient, which means six of the eight. And that comes from the fact that, of course, in a civil case, it's just a balance of probabilities, right? Not proof beyond all reasonable doubt, sort of a lower threshold. Yes. Uh, And so there certainly are some differences. And I should also say that now in B.C., there are a number of areas where you can't have a civil jury trial and you haven't been allowed to have one. They include um, if you're suing the Crown, they don't allow you to have a civil jury trial. Hmm. I guess the uh, Crown didn't like the idea that a bunch of us rabble might uh, come to some decision about (laughs) what ought to happen (laughs) involving the government. Well, you know, you know. Uh, and there are various other things that you can't go there for dealing with things like mortgage foreclosures and other things. Yeah. And so one, there are several possibilities. One possibility would be to carry on with them, continue with them, like civil jury trials, right, once we're able to do that safely. Another would be to restrict the kinds of matters that can have a, you can have a civil jury trial for or to get rid of them altogether permanently. 
Um, and it was interesting to see. There's a very good report uh, written by the BC Law Institute that has looked at the whole history of all of this and how different provinces deal with it, different Commonwealth jurisdictions deal with it. Um, and one of the interesting uh, elements there um, is that in some places, uh, including Alberta and the Yukon, uh, they restrict civil jury trials to particular kinds of cases. Uh, and the idea there would be cases where it might be particularly important to have uh, sort of a community standard uh, applied uh, to decisions. And so, for example, in Alberta, mm-hmm. they allow civil jury trials for things including false imprisonment, malicious mm-hmm. prosecution, mm-hmm. sedition, and another interesting one, breach of promise to marry. Breach uh, of so, promise to marry. Wow. And when I read that, I thought to myself, how common are cases of breach of promise to marry? And indeed, not common, but we do have them. No, we, we don't uh, prosecute example, sedition very often either, do we? But you, no, that's true. But you, you know, there it is: a civil jury trial in Alberta. And so that caused me to look in BC. You know, when was the last time there was a reported case for breach of promise to marry? Yeah. And indeed, I found one uh, from February of 1981. Really? And this was the fact pattern. This was a judge alone. Yeah. This was the ad run in the newspaper: SOS, widower, 65, young and sporty, non-alcoholic, gentleman, financially independent, alone, 168 centimeters, tall, and nice-looking house and property looking for an educated lady without dependents to meet. Uh, that person <laughs> managed to attract a beautician a few years earlier, younger than him. Yes. Uh, and unfortunately, the ad wasn't completely accurate. The defendant was two years older than the ad said. His financial independence was only the fact that he was a pensioner and lived in Canada with some small savings. Uh. Uh, but the judge concluded the person he was going to marry was not misled. They lived together for a, a very short period of time before he realized this just was not going to work. And so he called off the marriage. Interesting. Sued. Wow. Uh, and ultimately, the judge found that, yes, indeed, he had breached this promise to marry, but concluded that, really, this woman had lost out on nothing <laughs> in terms of damages. The judge concluded, had the marriage proceeded, it most surely would have been short-lived because the parties had clearly demonstrated their incompatibility during the few weeks they lived together. <laughs> and so the complaint, the person who was suing uh, didn't get any damages. So indeed, hmm. those cases do exist, but they're awfully uh, rare uh, in modern times. So that would be one approach, limit where they could be used. And the other interesting thing about this discussion is sort of where are they currently used? What kinds yeah. of cases are currently scheduled to have a civil jury trial? Because if you want to have a civil jury trial, one of the interesting elements is the the party wanting one has to ask for one and file some paperwork, but they also have to pay for it. Uh, And you have to start by a $1,500 deposit, and then the the juries, jurors, get paid each day. They're serving as a juror, and that has to be paid for. And so if a party doesn't provide the, the requisite money each day, that's the end of the case. And so... Uh, There has to be payments to the sheriff uh, in order to pay the jurors and pay the other associated expenses. And one of the things that does is, presumptively, the winning side is going to have to pay for all of that. Uh, And so it puts pressure uh, on uh, the uh, parties to try to come to a settlement because the costs award could have gone way up because of the need to pay for the jury. Yes. Now, here's an interesting stat. Between 2016 and 2020, um, there were in BC 21,374 
notices requesting a civil jury trial. Hmm. Almost all of them were Motor Vehicle Act cases. And we'll get to why in a moment. Oh. But only of those, 120 proceeded to a final decision. So 21,000 and change requests, 120 get to a final resolution. And most of the requests come by Defense Council acting for ICBC. Yeah. And the cynical uh, explanation for that would include the fact that um, jurors might be concerned about their own rates going up if they wind up uh, awarding a significant amount. Mm -hmm. And there's also an interesting little wrinkle that causes problems uh, for uh, civil jury cases because there's a rule that provides that for non-pecuniary losses like pain and suffering, yes. right? Um, juries cannot... You, lawyers cannot make submissions and the judge cannot provide instructions to the jury about what would be an appropriate range of damages. So the jury's kind of left on their own uh, to come up with whatever they think might be appropriate. And so sometimes the amount they award is enormous, right? Or yeah, because other cases might yeah. be tiny, right? Yeah. And so if you're defending the case, what happens is if they award you know, $5 billion or something, it goes to the Court of Appeal and that gets overturned, right? It's completely yeah. excessive. But if they award $50, the conclusion would be, well, I guess they just didn't think the person was that hurt. Oh, I see. And There's so, no symmetry in the errors. If it's too high, it yeah. gets overturned, but if it's too low, it's ignored. Interesting. So that, that may well explain why that is a category of cases for which they are frequently requested. I see. But one of the key arguments for keeping civil jury trials is that it brings a community standard to what's going on in court. And that, I think, is very important. Yes. It's also, I think, really valuable that people in the community participate in juries, both criminal and civil when we have them, because in addition to bringing community standards to decisions, the people that serve on juries go back into the community and can report to others about, well, what's going on in that building, right? Mm -hmm. you, you don't want the justice system to be some abstract, inaccessible, remote thing sort of decided by people in funny robes. You want, in my view, a justice system where the community is participating in it. Yes. And it's both valuable because community members have a real impact on what is the jury's decision. Of course, they're deciding, but also because they have that experience and they can go back and tell their friends and family, hey, here's what it's actually like to have to decide one of these cases. And it, I think for many people, it's both a rewarding experience and it's very eye-opening in terms of how much harder it is in reality than it might appear when you just see a headline about something. You think, oh, well, that's easy. I could figure that out, no problem. When you're the actual person who has to listen to the witnesses and make a decision, yeah. it's often much more challenging than it would seem. And I think that's really important as well. So if people have a view about that, uh, the government just announced this review to decide what they're going to do. They're only allowing feedback up to September the 30th, so it's just a short time. And if you have views on the matter and you want to uh, express them, I'd encourage you to have people to look up and review the uh, BC uh, Law Institute paper and in civil juries in British Columbia. You can read about it. And then if you want to uh, express your opinion uh, to the government, uh, you can do that by email. And the email for that is pld at gov.bc.ca. And so if you have uh, views on whether we should keep them 
or restrict them or get rid of them altogether, um, that's your opportunity to uh, provide a uh, submission about what you think should happen. Confirming PLD at gov.bc.ca. That's exactly it. All right. Interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, Is this a good spot for our first break? Sounds good. All right. We'll take a quick break. We're back in just a moment with Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. All right, we're back on the air here at CFAX 1070. Legally speaking, on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. After paying no taxes for many years, could declaring bankruptcy absolve oneself of one's financial responsibilities, Michael? Not necessarily. <laughs> As a, uh, a gentleman just uh, found out uh, by the time he got all the way to the Court of Appeal in British Columbia, uh, and the case involves a man who... Uh, for extended period of time, he was a self-employed. Uh, he installed uh, fire protection equipment, um, and uh, for a period uh, for just about eleven years, he just didn't file or pay his income taxes. Um, and uh, during that period of time, uh, at some point, he sought out advice from people described as tax protesters, of which there are a few uh-huh. uh, who you know refuse to pay their taxes and eventually wind up in court. Uh, Finally, the man got in touch after uh, the revenue people were involved with an accountant, but by that point, uh, he owed something in excess of just over $1 million in unpaid taxes and penalties and interest. And so when he wasn't paying his GST, he wasn't paying his income taxes, and so that's what it all totaled up to. I see. And so the man trundled off and went bankrupt, (laughs) thinking, well, this might clear this all away for me. I can just carry on. It'll be great. But... Uh, I think perhaps un- uh, unknown to him, declaring bankruptcy, even if it's your first time around, does not mean that everything just automatically goes away, right? You don't get to yell up and you know stand up and just yell, "I declare bankruptcy," and carry on about your business. No, it, it, surely it would so. be misused if that was possible, and somebody would have fixed that error by now. And, and indeed, they have. Uh, and so the uh, the case eventually wound up in front of a registrar, and the registrar provided or made a decision that the man, in order to be eventually discharged from bankruptcy, right, he's gone bankrupt, he can certainly choose to do that, but he would need to repay $150,000 with monthly payments of not less than $1,000. Wow. Uh, And the reason for doing that, one of the sections of the Bankruptcy Act, Section 173, provides that um, if somebody goes bankrupt and their assets are less than 50 cents on the dollar, right? Your debts exceed your uh, assets by that amount. Yes. Unless you satisfy the court that your bankruptcy has arisen as a result of circumstances for which the bankrupt cannot justly be held responsible, uh, then that is a consideration in terms of whether to discharge the person or require them to keep paying uh, before they eventually become discharged. And the registrar didn't have much sympathy uh, for the man not paying taxes and then taking the advice of the tax protesters and continuing not to pay taxes for a very long period of time. But the case eventually got to the Court of Appeal because the man was arguing essentially that, look, you know, even though he didn't pay the money and he acknowledges that he made a poor decision and he should have not listened to the tax protesters, 
Um, his lawyer was arguing that, look, he wasn't a scoundrel, but rather an unsophisticated person uh, who made poor decisions <laughs> and inadvertently turned to tax protesters for advice. I'm, I'm sorry. I just like a picture counsel. Your Honor, my client, he is not a scoundrel. Not he is scoundrel. He's merely unsophisticated. You can just picture what the guy looked like. <laughs> so, you know, it's never a good thing when you have to make suspicion your client is not a scoundrel. But the <laughs> so. Eventually, the Court of Appeal came down on a middle ground here. The judge concluded that, or the Court of Appeal concluded that requiring him to pay the $150,000 back uh, would mean that he'd be paying uh, this money back until he was 67 years old and and likely into retirement at that point. Uh, And there is some concept that a person should eventually be able to make a uh, fresh start. And so the Court of Appeal came to a compromise position whereby the man will be required to, and I should say he'd been bankrupt for several years. So some of the money would have been paid back over the course of the period of time when he was just in bankruptcy. Because when you're in bankruptcy, all of your money is going to the trustees and paying back your creditors and so on. Yes. But the in order to eventually become discharged, the Court of Appeal has ordered that the man uh, – pay back an additional $45,000 with minimum installments of $750 a month uh, over a period of five years. And so he'll have to continue paying back, uh, but not as long as what was originally ordered. But the real takeaway there is don't think that you can just yell, I declare bankruptcy and not pay your taxes. And if you're getting advice, you might want to speak to a accountant or a tax lawyer and not uh, somebody who's got some really great sounding advice about how you know, you're not a real person and don't have to pay anything, uh, that will eventually end in tears, uh, as it did for this man. All right. A clause in a contract uh, to do with litigation in Ontario, I'm reading here. We've got four and a half minutes left. Yeah. So this is a good one. This is actually another decision of uh, Justice uh, Verhoeven, who's got some attention lately. Yes, um, he has. I should say about him. Yeah. He's a very nice man. I, I dealt with him when he was a lawyer uh, doing volunteer work for the uh, uh Canadian Bar Association, but this was a, it's a case involving a, um, a woman who had worked for many years for an organization called Homewood Health as a counselor, a registered clinical counselor. She'd counsel employees and other corporate clients. And over the years from 2008 until 2020, she was required to sign various contracts uh, setting out how much she'd be paid, $50 an hour or $60 an hour. At one point, they reduced it, which seems a little uh, Scrooge McDuck. But mm. uh, in, in any case, uh, <laughs> she had to sign these various contracts. And then one of the contracts in 2015, which they told her, sign this, um, had a clause that said, the parties hereby irrevocably torn to the jurisdiction of the Superior Court of the Province of Ontario. Uh, and so, I don't know what that means. It means like agree to have the, that that court would have jurisdiction. Okay. Like we agree now that that court has jurisdiction. Okay. And then eventually the company fired the woman, uh, and the with thirty days notice. And so the woman was is suing the company. She lives in BC, right? Mm-hmm. And the company's here too, right? They've got offices here. Um, she was suing them for uh, wrongful dismissal, uh, sort of failure to give her enough notice when they fired her after her. 12 years of service, right? They give her the 30 days notice. Yes. Uh, and when she did that, the company said, oh, no, you can't sue us in British Columbia. You've got to come to Ontario. Look at the clause here. Uh, and so 
the judge had to decide whether that clause had that effect, um, whether this woman would be unable to sue the company uh, for this contract, which she entered into in British Columbia when she lives in British Columbia and worked in British Columbia. Does she have to go do that in Ontario at some significant expense? Yes. Uh, and Justice Verhoeven, for with uh, great clarity and for multiple reasons, concluded that that's not fair. The company cannot do that. The clause is not effective. Uh, he found, first of all, that the clause doesn't say it's exclusive jurisdiction for Ontario. Uh, so that was his first reason. Then he found, in addition, uh, that the company provided no consideration for her entering into the contract. One of the requirements for there to be a valid contract is that there has to be something given by each side, right? Mm. Consideration, which is what separates a contract from a bare promise. Okay. If somebody walks up to you and says, I promise to give you $100 tomorrow, and then doesn't, that's not enforceable because that was just some promise. But if I they see. say to you, I'll give you $100 tomorrow if you'll move your car, now we got a contract. Oh, right? okay. You're okay. moving the car, I'm promising $100, that's a contract rather than a, a, a bare promise. And so the judge also found that there was no consideration here. The company just told her, sign this thing. She got nothing for it other than the company got to insert this clause that made it harder for them to be sued. Uh, and so for that reason as well, it was ineffective. Next, and finally, the uh, judge found that the clause was void for unconscionability. The idea that, look, you've got a employee here. There's no uh, parity of bargaining power. Um, you know, you're just telling her, sign this thing. There's no opportunity for negotiations or anything else. And then it has this effect of making it uh, extremely difficult and expensive to successfully, uh, you know, advance your claim. Mm. Uh, and so uh, the uh, conclusion was that the uh, clause was unfair, disadvantageous, no consideration, um, and just basically unenforceable. Uh, and so that was his conclusion. And so this uh, woman will be able to continue with her claim. And then to put a cherry on top of all of that, I think probably as a result of a, a, parent, a conclusion that, you know, this woman was treated in a pretty uh, apparently unfair fashion by having her sign this uh, totally disadvantageous agreement to keep working yes. until she was fired. Uh, he awarded costs for the application in any event of the cause payable within 30 days, which means the company tried to get the claim struck out on the basis of this unfair clause. She's going to get her costs for having to defend that no matter what happens with the eventual case. So there'll be a little bit of justice for the fired counselor from Homewood Health, Inc. Um, and uh, so there's the decision from Justice uh, Verhoeven. Very well. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for the benefit of your knowledge and insight on these matters. We look forward to next week. Always a pleasure. Stay safe. All right. You too. We'll see you there.